Today, it is my honor to nominate one of our nation's most brilliant and gifted legal minds to the Supreme Court, Judge Amy Coney Barrett. I am deeply honored by the confidence that you have placed in me. And I am so grateful to you and the First Lady, to the Vice President and the Second Lady, and to so many others here for your kindness on this rather overwhelming occasion. I love the United States, and I love the United States Constitution. Hey, y'all. Happy first Monday. It's Celine here with the final episode of this season of Three on Three. Now, typically I take this time to give a little spiel and introduce the topic of this episode, but this time around, I think I'm going to let my friend Gabrielle do that. She called in early last week and left me a message. Hello, during the Trump-Biden debate that happened on Tuesday night, nothing was made clear about Amy Barrett um, and who she is and what her arguments would be when she's on the Supreme Court. I was wondering if you could go over what her views are and what her record as a judge has been and how it might affect the Supreme Court. Thank you. Thanks, G-Balls, for the message. I couldn't agree more. I watched the debate too, and I had a nice little watch party with my other friends, Julia and Elizabeth. Shout out to them. We were part of the thousands of people watching the NPR live stream, and if you're watching along with us, you'd remember that Chris Wallace, who is the moderator, he earmarked a portion of the debate to ask questions about the Supreme Court of the United States and, by extension, the federal judiciary, which is, of course, my jam. And like you, I was disappointed with how the night went. So it spiraled. Chris Wallace teed up a loaded first question, which was ultimately, where do you think a Justice Barrett would take the Supreme Court? And on Trump's end, the most he could articulate about Judge Barrett was that she was a top, top academic and good in every way. But when time turned to Vice President Biden, Biden illuminated ACB's past writings where she cast a doubt on the viability of the Affordable Care Act. And he reasoned that a Justice Barrett would gut the ACA for President Trump and, by extension, jeopardize people's health care and particularly women's health care. And eventually, he made a leap to discussing the future of Roe v. Wade. And so, Biden said that Roe was on the ballot in the courts. And what he meant by that is the endurance and force of Roe v. Wade as legitimate law in this country is tied to who you vote in as president. And that's a damn good point. And it's the perfect one to let me segue into the first thing I want to discuss in this episode, which is how do presidents decide on a judicial nominee? To put it plainly, when presidential administrations come into power, they already have a draft list of people they've been spitballing over since campaigning. So let's call this the long list. This list has basic info on prospective 
judicial nominees like their biographies and summaries of their careers. And the White House Counsel's Office is responsible for keeping this list. And throughout an administration's time, people work to update the long list. And when a Supreme Court seat opens up, there's like an all-hands-on-deck revisit. For example, and I wrote about this in my senior thesis, when Sandra Day O'Connor announced her retirement on July 1st, 2005, the way the media depicted the White House's reaction to the news of her announcement was if Sandra Day O'Connor had put the 4th of July on hold for the nation. The holidays were put on hold for those people in the White House inner circle, and they dedicated the next few days of their lives aiding George W. Bush in his search for a new justice who turned out to be Samuel Alito. Now, before we dive into the criteria for judicial nominees, I want to give you historical background on this review process. The modern selection process wasn't really standardized and streamlined until the 1980s when the Reagan administration centralized the exercise of the nomination power and kept it in close corners. Under Reagan, the DOJ's Office of Legal Policy served as the locus for the selection process, and this office still exists today. And the lawyers working in this office are responsible for conducting extensive interviews with prospective nominees, reviewing their paper trails, legal, academic, or personal, and developing this thoroughness allowed the Reagan administration and succeeding presidential administrations to diligently explore the scope of a nominee's judicial philosophy. At the same time, the Reagan administration had this committee in the White House dedicated to managing federal judicial selection. So the committee composed of high-level officials such as the Attorney General appears to be the precursor to informal working groups that modern presidents like Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump have formed. These working groups involve a lot of outsiders to the White House, such as senators, outside organizations like the Conservative Federalist Society, and sometimes federal judges themselves. Since the goal of the administration is to get a nominee through a grueling set of hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee, it seems right that legislators would be in the room providing advice, because literally there is an advise and consent clause in the Constitution. After the administration's review of their list and reviewing nominees' dossiers and heeding the words of advisors, the administration reaches out to people on their shortlist for interviews with the president. The shortlist is typically leaked prior to interviews, so the White House can kind of gauge public reaction to their top prospects. When assessing people on their list, presidents and their staff look for the following criteria. The big one is nominee jurisprudence. So jurisprudence is a nominee's judicial philosophy, which guides how they typically interpret cases. And by inquiring and looking into jurisprudence, administrations want to know how a prospective nominee views the role of a judge, which sources and influences they believe 
it's appropriate to draw upon when interpreting laws, and that ultimately illuminates which rights they believe exist under our Constitution and which laws are permissible under our Constitution. The next thing they look for is patterns of policy sympathy, and this is more specific than jurisprudence. An administration may have a specific policy goal, such as, say, <laughs> repealing the Affordable Care Act, and would look for publications such as prior opinions or law review articles written by a prospective nominee and determine whether or not they are sympathetic to the ACA and to what extent. And finally, administrations consider ascriptive factors like gender and race and sometimes home state. And consideration of ascriptive factors is usually due to political calculus. So nominating someone based on their gender, race, or home state works as a way to appease senators and the American populace. For example, think of Joe Biden promising he'd appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court. President Trump was also rumored to have considered Judge Barbara Lagoa, a Latina appellate judge from Florida, to help him carry the state and satisfy his Latinx and female voters. So when you see presidential nominees or presidents doing that, they're considering these factors because they have something to gain from it politically. Ascriptive attributes make me think about how presidents try to develop a judicial persona for their nominees for the public eye. The judiciary relies heavily on the weight of public opinion for its legitimacy, which is what necessitates this reputational development. For the second point I want to address in this episode, I'm going to analyze the imagery of President Trump's nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. This point is going to clarify the title of this episode, which is a Taylor Swift lyric from Blank Space. Taylor, if you're listening to this, please don't sue me. I'm literally using your music for a good cause. But anyways, if you can't tell, I was inspired by the fact that Judge Barrett's nomination took place in the White House Rose Garden. Justice O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg were nominated by Presidents Reagan and Clinton in the Garden, respectively. And that's a significant thread of history in the Rose Garden, particularly when it comes to females and the High Court. I immediately think about the scenery and how gardens and flowers are symbols of femininity. But the significance of the Rose Garden gets even more specific as we consider the circumstances under which Judge Barrett was nominated. She's replacing a legal titan and a feminist icon, someone who basically set the groundwork for gender equality litigation. Justice Ginsburg, as I said, was nominated in the Rose Garden, and the way the Clinton administration set up the stage was that there were flags hanging along the walkway from the Oval Office to a podium set up in the Rose Garden, and the Trump administration mirrored that. Now, aside from these aesthetic similarities, I find it curious that Judge Barrett paid homage to Justice Ginsburg, not just openly, but also subtly. So Justice Barrett acknowledged Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing, but in Ruth Bader Ginsburg's nomination speech, she mentioned that her children thought her husband Marty was the better cook, and he was. He literally has a cookbook and they sell it at the Supreme Court. And Amy Coney Barrett did the same thing in her speech. So. 
Amy Coney Barrett channeled RBG, dug up that memory, and you know what some say, imitation is a sincere form of flattery. But in this case, a lot of people, myself included, were not so sure about the sincerity of the Trump administration and Judge Barrett's appropriation of RBG's memory. When analyzing the entire image of Amy Coney Barrett's nomination, I think what the administration is trying to say about ACB is that she's a conservative feminist. Like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she's a working mom, she's intelligent, capable, learned, all around she's qualified, and she's a paradigm for the accomplished conservative woman. But can a conservative woman as talented, strong-willed, and powerful as Amy Coney Barrett is really be considered a feminist? Can she truly be a conservative foil to RBG? Is that a thing? <laughs> To help me answer this question, I asked my former gender in the law professor, Sarah Kalina, for her insight. Professor Kalina is part of the Women's and Gender Studies and Government Departments at Georgetown, and on top of teaching gender in the law, she also teaches a series of Title IX classes. She's also the founder of Blueberry Hill Strategies, which works on policy advocacy, focusing on gender and healthcare policy. And of course, according to her and Vice President Joe Biden, these policies areas intersect. Professor Kalina had a few things to say, so here she is. So Judge Barrett has raised this issue of conservative feminism, and you asked the question, is this really a thing? Well, I strongly recommend that you and your listeners take a look at Why I Am Not a Feminist by uh, Jesse Crispin. It's a really funny, great book that addresses this issue of what feminism means and what it means when everybody and anybody gets to be a feminist. It becomes an identity that people can choose. And if everybody gets to define it for themselves, then sure, anyone can be a feminist. That's how it works. If feminism is an identity, then of course, anyone can be a feminist. It's just about liking the word and choosing to wear it. If feminism is about power and about a critique of the subordination of all things feminine, well, yeah, then that's going to be a smaller club. What matters is their understanding of oppression, subordination, power and privilege, and their vision of what gender could and should mean in an egalitarian world. I don't know Judge Barrett, but I imagine that she would bring to the court um, a, a different perspective because of her lived experience as a female. And I guess that could be a value. But again, this focuses on sex is not binary, gender is not binary, and the experience of being a woman and the experience of being a man None of that is binary. Some women identify with a very narrow part of feminism, and that is the notion that privileged white women should be able to have access to privileged white men's jobs, places like at the Supreme Court, and I guess that is a part of feminism. I think what matters most at this point is not trying to exclude people from uh, the community of feminists, but instead focusing on rejecting the narrow definitions of man, woman, sex, gender, and rejecting the binary so that we have a completely new way of thinking about gender that does not subordinate femininity. You know, when I posed this question for Professor Kalina to weigh in on, I had in the back of my mind a series of tweets I'd seen of females and femme-identifying people acknowledging anti-feminine 
attacks thrown at Amy Coney Barrett. For example, someone wondered whether she could handle being a Supreme Court justice while being a mom of seven children. These women laid down their swords and shields, making it known that Amy Coney Barrett was an anti-feminist in the sense that she had used her immense power as a judge and could predictably use that power as a justice on the court to hurt women's rights and, by extension, the pursuit of gender equality on the legal front. Because Amy Coney Barrett has used her power in such a way, they didn't even try defending her in the face of these sexist attacks. And so this tension, this debate, is what I'm referring to in my appropriation of the Rose Garden lyric from Blank Space. Like Taylor Swift, People think that ACB has the potential to be a nightmare for women's rights dressed like an espresso-colored daydream. And so in my frame of mind, I was thinking solely about this inclusion-exclusion narrative around feminism, and having heard Professor Kalina's input, I agree and now realize that that narrative of who gets to be a feminist is kind of besides the true point we should be focusing on. And as she said, the more productive framework to operate within is thinking about sex and gender in light of power and acting in a way that doesn't demean femininity and ensures equal treatment along the entire spectrums of sex and gender. So Professor Kalina, thank you so, so much for the recommendation. Thank you for you know, giving your input on this, and it's definitely going to guide the third point that I'm going to bring up in this episode. For my third point, I'm going to finally start to address Gabrielle's question by giving you a rundown of who Amy Coney Barrett is and discussing some of her notable opinions as a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. The information in this portion of the podcast was drawn from Judge Barrett's questionnaire, which was recently submitted to the Senate Committee on the Judiciary. This questionnaire is like a curriculum vitae. She gives the basics of her personal history, her academic history, and professional history, where she lists all her appearances, publications, and opinions, as well as other affiliations. And members of the Judiciary Committee and their staff will then go through the questionnaire, flag items of interest, do further research, um, comb through articles and writings, and formulate the questions that senators will ask at her hearings, which are still slated to be on October 12th. Here are some of the factoids about ACB I found in her questionnaire that I think we should just all know about. She's 48, which is pretty young. So thinking back to my previous episode, on average, Supreme Court justices spend 20 plus years on the court and she'd still be 68. She wouldn't even hit the septuagenarian status. So I think Trump's Trump's decision to pick her is also taking into account longevity. Um, aside from her age, she was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, and she graduated from Rhodes College, magna cum laude, and Notre Dame Law School, summa cum laude. She was a law professor at Notre Dame, UVA, and George Washington Law Schools, and was a law clerk to the Honorable Lawrence Silberman, a judge on the DC Circuit, and the Honorable Antonin Scalia, Associate Justice of the US Supreme Court. 
So her resume is without a doubt loaded. But setting that aside, we can now get to what we really want to talk about, her judicial opinions. In her questionnaire, the Judiciary Committee required her to identify and brief them on 10 significant opinions she'd written. Since this episode began as a recap of Joe Biden implying that a Justice Barrett on the Supreme Court would be a danger to women's rights, and Professor Kalina in the previous segment provided us with an analytical framework, I'm going to discuss two of Judge Barrett's opinions regarding Title VII and Title IX. Before I start my discussion, I would like to issue a word of caution. These cases concern sexual harassment and assault, so if you need to pause and gather the spoons or even just dip out from this conversation, please just do what's best for you. If you feel like you'd still want to learn about Judge Barrett's opinions, I'm currently working on a spreadsheet on her 10 greatest hits where I'll summarize her holdings and analyses and I'll post them up on my pending podcast page so y'all can look at them when you feel safe and you're working on your own time. So if it's okay, I'll get started with the first case, which is Equal Employment Opportunity Commission versus Costco, decided by Judge Barrett in 2018. As I did in the first episode of this podcast, I'm going through this case using the IRAC method, which is issue, rule, analysis, and conclusion. I'm also going to be providing necessary background context. EEOC v. Costco concerns Don Supo, who was a Costco employee, and she was stalked for the longest time by this guy named Thad while on the job. Thad harassed Don to the point where she filed a restraining order against him and had to take unpaid leave to avoid him. Costco eventually fired Don because she took too long of a leave, and the EEOC, which has the authority to investigate charges of discrimination against employers, who are covered by the law, sued on her behalf, saying that Costco had discriminated against her by creating and tolerating a sexually hostile work environment of offensive comments of a sexual nature, unwelcome touching, unwelcome advances, and stalking by a customer. Since Barrett's a circuit judge, that means in this case she's reviewing the work of a district court. She's making sure the decision they rendered was adjudicated correctly. And the district court deals directly with intake of evidence and trial. So the most Barrett can do is agree with what the district court said or send the case back for more evidence and further adjudication. The issue in this case is whether the lower court was right in denying Costco's motion for judgment as a matter of law. And a motion for judgment as a matter of law is presented to the court before a case is submitted to a jury, and it argues that no reasonable jury could find for the opposing party. So in the context of this case, Costco made the argument that the jury, if it were a reasonable jury, couldn't find support for Don, or wouldn't be able to find support for Don, and the court didn't buy it. It also concerns whether Don is entitled to back pay. The lower court ruled that she couldn't recover back pay from the time after Costco fired her. So these are the issues and the lower court's positions on them, and they're what Amy Coney Barrett is reviewing. In terms of the rules guiding this, I think the big ones are Title VII and the doctrine of constructive discharge. For now, I'm just going to define Title VII for you. Title VII is a federal labor law that, in one of its provisions, bars employers from 
from discriminating during the hiring process, employment, and in discharge on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, national origin. So Title VII as a federal law is sweeping, and for her purposes, Amy Coney Barrett is bound to Title VII jurisprudence within the Seventh Circuit which is her circuit. And what I mean by this is that in her decisions on Title VII, she has to prioritize drawing upon and interpreting what the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals has already opined on regarding this particular law. So let's dig into the Seventh Circuit jurisprudence that ACB draws upon to analyze Costco's motion for judgment as a matter of law and what the lower court decided. First, she clarifies that Costco can be sued even though it's Thad who did the harassing. And she has to clarify this because Title VII's language alone primarily concerns the power dynamic between employer and employee. ACB says that in a case called Dunvee Washington County Hospital, which was decided by the Seventh Circuit in 2005, the court established an employer can be liable for a hostile work environment that results from the acts of non-employees, including customers. So check, they're suing, they're suing the right people. Then she says that to put forward a legitimate hostile work environment claim, the EEOC on behalf of Dawn has to follow this four-prong litmus test set out in a case that the Seventh Circuit decided in 2008. So Dawn had to prove that, one, she was subjected to unwelcome sexual conduct advances or requests. Two, this was because of her sex. Three, that what she was subjected to was so severe or pervasive to engender a hostile work environment. And four, that there's a basis for employer liability. The only prong that Costco challenged Dawn on was the third prong, because if you remember, their motion presented their belief that no reasonable jury could find that she was subjected to customer misconduct that was so bad the safety of her work environment had been compromised. So the type of stuff Thad was doing is important to this case. He would like stare at Dawn from afar, try to strike up conversations with her by asking creepy questions. At one point he videotaped her he had some sort of nickname for her. He touched her and tried touching her multiple times and he'd bump carts with her. It was just this amalgamation of all that type of harassment that led her to push for a restraining order aside from telling her manager. Then Thad was forced to go shop at a different Costco location and one time he bumped into Dawn at said location and he just popped off on her. ACB uses all of this evidence of Dawn's traumatic experiences to rebut Costco's motion. And let me just say Costco had the audacity to say that what Dawn experienced was tepid, especially compared to, you know, the atrociously lewd actions the Seventh Circuit had historically let slide, which is, wow. I don't think this is a reflection of ACB because she wasn't part of the decision-making process of the precedent Costco cited for this argument, but it is a reflection on how problematic Title VII case law has been. So props, I guess, to ACB for, in a way, 
trying to improve case law by recognizing Dawn's experiences. And as she makes a great case using precedent that even though what Dawn experienced wasn't flat out sexual assault, or it wasn't blaringly lascivious, it's still valid. It still constitutes harassment on the basis of sex and amounts to a Title VII discrimination claim. She calls out Costco for implying that harassment must be overtly sexual to be actionable under Title VII and cites a 2012 Seventh Circuit case that held that actionable discrimination can take other forms such as demeaning, ostracizing, or even terrorizing the victim because of their sex. To summarize ACB, it's the frequency for her. It's the creepiness for her. It's the invasion of privacy by filming for her. It's also the fact that Thad broke a damn restraining order for her. So ACB is viewing Dawn's situation with Thad holistically and finds Costco's defense as cheap. So another check. The lower court was correct. Then we get to this issue of back pay, which to me was shorter and simpler in terms of analysis. And the rule regulating back pay is something called constructive discharge, which is adjacent to wrongful termination. Basically, it's when an employer wrongfully made working conditions so intolerable that the employee was forced to resign. So ACB in the opinion states that Costco accepts liability for Don and her work environment and doesn't argue that their response was lackluster. Legally, the standard for employers when addressing in-house harassment is that they just have to try from what I gathered in this opinion. So yeah, it's a pretty low bar. So Costco is liable for anything that happened to Dawn on the job, but not off the job. And so Amy Coney Barrett agreed with the lower court that Costco doesn't have to pay Dawn for the time after she was fired because constructive discharge only applies when an employee resigns. But she does in the end arrive at this complete conclusion that the district court properly denied Costco's motion, but because it didn't address whether the sexual harassment that Supo suffered while at Costco forced her to take unpaid medical leave, she remanded the case to the district court so that it could decide that question. So final check. The lower court has more work to do. And I think the takeaway from this is that some Title VII jurisprudence sucks. Um, Costco sucks for propounding the tepid harassment argument. And this isn't really a red flag opinion by Amy Coney Barrett. I mean, if I were her, I too would have listed this as a significant opinion because if we are to look at this through the lens of power, as Professor Kalina told us to, I think her adherence to case law to maintain the breadth of the type of harassment eligible to trigger Title VII protections was correct. And she exercised her judicial capacities to send this case back down to the district court for them to consider what I think is the right question, which is whether that medical leave that Don took can be proven to have been constructive discharge. The only thing is, and you know, this is purely hypothetical, I wonder whether she would come to the same conclusion if Don Supo were trans or gender non-binary, lesbian, etc. Because she did she did fine with a cis heterosexual dynamic, 
but would she come with the same energy for LGBTQ people? That's what I'm that's what I'm curious about. And I think her propensity towards textualism and originalism as a jurist, as well as her previous statements about how she mediates between her Catholic background and role as a judge, which I will get to in a different episode, that's, that's put people on edge. And I don't blame them because I'm kind of nervous as well because her discussion history on that topic is wishy-washy from the reports that I've read. But there is precedent now regarding Title VII. Um, I think it would be right to say that Bostock v. Clayton County, which appeals more so to a textualist interpretation of on the basis of sex, that protects LGBTQ people from employment discrimination. So if she really is a textualist, then she probably wouldn't try to touch that case. And this is all just to say that in the end, this is about her integrity as a jurist and public intellectual. Does she actually practice what she preaches? Is she consistent? And that's what we have to look out for during these hearings. And that's what our senators need to do for and alongside us. But now we have to discuss the second opinion, which is John Doe v. Purdue University. And, you know, Purdue is the state university in Indiana. And this was just decided last year, 2019. And there's so much to this case. It's just wild. Doe v. Purdue arose from sexual assault allegations by Jane Doe, a female student at Purdue, against her ex John Doe, a male student at Purdue who participated in the Navy ROTC program. The issue in this case is whether John Doe provided a substantive claim under the 14th Amendment and Title IX, and a magistrate judge of the lower court said he made no substantive claims. And just FYI, a magistrate judge is a judicial officer appointed by district courts that handles various proceedings. And magistrate judges, they exist for court efficiency. And according to info on the U.S. Courts website, they have authority to issue warrants, conduct preliminary proceedings in criminal cases, such as initial appearances and arraignments. And they also can hear cases involving petty offenses committed on federal lands. So magistrate judges the more you know. In this case, the rules guiding the magistrate judge and Amy Coney Barrett are, as previously stated, the 14th Amendment and Title IX. More specifically regarding the Fourth Amendment, John Doe raised claims under the Due Process Clause. You probably know what the Due Process Clause says. States aren't allowed to deprive you of life, liberty, or property without due process, without justification. So Title IX is essentially Title VII, but for schools, okay? And Title IX empowers universities to investigate complaints about things like sexual harassment and assault. Before I delve into the facts, I just want to acknowledge that what I'm summarizing to you and what Amy Coney Barrett summarized in the opinion is legally biased. According to Seventh Circuit case law, as Amy Coney Barrett points out in her opinion, that's what is required. Because she's reviewing the magistrate judge's decision based on John's complaint, she's bound to sticking to his side of the story, his truth, I guess. She writes, our task is not to determine what allegations are supported by the evidence, but to determine whether John is entitled to relief if everything that he says is true. And that's a significant opening declaration. And again, I think this doesn't really reveal anything about Amy Coney Barrett. Instead, I think it's an unfortunate design flaw in our common law system. Jane Doe accused John Doe of assaulting her while she was asleep. 
Jane apparently didn't file an official complaint with the university, but the coordinator in charge of Title IX complaints elected to investigate it anyways. And let me just say, this is so frustrating for me to talk about because peppered in the opinions restatement of the facts that John Doe provided, you can just tell they're designed to make Jane Doe look bad and they're just horrible, horrible things. It mentioned that she was mentally unstable and that she reported her assault when everyone else was reporting during campus sexual assault awareness month. So I guess he was trying to make it seem like she reported to be trendy. He also mentioned the fact that an article was shared called alcohol isn't the cause of campus sexual assault. Men are. So you can see the argument that John is trying to muster, especially regarding Title IX. Ugh, I, okay, I'll get to it later, but I just, I can't. <laughs> I can't imagine being a female judge and having to take this on as a case. But yeah, no, John found out about Jane's allegations via letter. He categorically denied her allegations and following that, the investigation went underway and everything went downhill for him. Upon getting the notification letter, he lost privileges. Most notably, he was suspended from ROTC. When the investigation was done, the resulting report was given to a review committee and John was called in. John apparently wasn't given a copy of the investigative report, so he was basically going in blind to this review. In the report, apparently it stated that he had confessed, which was false, and the investigators didn't even interview people John Doe said could corroborate his side of the story. Some of the people on the committee also didn't read the report, apparently, and Jane Doe wasn't even there, so she couldn't have been cross-examined. John Doe basically argued that Jane Doe was given full presumption of innocence. He was eventually found guilty and was suspended for a year. So these statements from John Doe color Amy Coney Barrett's analysis. She first discusses this idea of the deprivation of property presented in the 14th Amendment and whether John suffered a deprivation of property. This is an interesting argument because when you think of property and the American conception of property, it's very Lockean. You you work at something and the product is your property. You work on your education, you pay for it, and it should be your property manifested in a diploma. But according to Amy Coney Barrett, a 2009 case decided by the Seventh Circuit established that a property right in higher education is established in a contract between a student and a university. So there has to be an explicit entitlement spelled out in a contract. But Barrett says John didn't suffer a deprivation of property at the hands of Purdue. Participating in Navy ROTC wasn't spelled out as something he was entitled to when he accepted Purdue's offer of admission. Then Barrett moves to the argument that John's liberty was deprived. And <laughs> What, you may ask, was the liberty that he was deprived of? John said that his freedom to pursue his occupational choice, being in the Navy, was what he was deprived of. So ACB invoked Seventh Circuit precedent. There's this stigma plus test for his situation, and he's got to prove that the university damaged his reputation and that his legal status changed. More specifically, he was demoted. So Amy Coney Barrett combs through Seventh Circuit case law, 
law and says the university damaged John's reputation. So John was legally obligated to authorize the university to disclose his situation to the Navy, which reacted by basically barring him. Now, this is where the argument gets tricky. Purdue argued basically that <laughs> it sucks to suck. He did this bad thing, he meaning John Doe, and he was legally obligated to authorize Purdue to disclose that information, and they did to the Navy. It's it's kind of like self-incrimination. But then Amy Coney Barrett divines from case law that that argument doesn't really work because according to Seventh Circuit precedent, since Purdue disclosed the information to the Navy, it's not self-incrimination. So to her, that proves that there was stigma generated around him. Purdue ruined his reputation. Now, he just needed the plus to get the law on his side. He needs to prove that there was a change in his legal status. And he does prove it, or Amy Coney Barrett does find that he proves it. Amy Coney Barrett opined that in finding John Doe guilty, his legal status was changed. He was no longer a full-time student. So to her, the magistrate judge was wrong. John Doe made constitutional points. Now we can move on to Title IX claims about unfair proceedings the nature of which John Doe claims was on the basis of sex. So this is the intersection of due process and Title IX. Um, I should have mentioned this before, but there are two types of due process claims. So the first one is substantive due process, which is the notion that the due process clause not only protects procedure, but it protects certain rights. So for example, um, the right to education, the right to abortion slash bodily autonomy, that's covered under substantive due process. Then you get what we're dealing with here, which is procedural due process, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's it's a fair investigation. It's, it's the reading of Miranda rights, all this procedural stuff. So you can tell that John Doe's claims connect under this grand arch of due process. He's, he's trying to prove that Purdue violated his substantive and procedural due process rights. Do you remember those problematic factoids I mentioned were peppered into the opinion's recount of John Doe's claims? Well, Amy Coney Barrett basically used those factoids to prove that one, Purdue's Title IX investigation of him was unfair, and two, that it was on the basis of sex. And how Amy Coney Barrett determined that the Title IX investigation was biased on the basis of sex is John Doe's argument that Purdue had a financial interest in punishing more men under Title IX claims. Apparently, in 2016, the Department of Education issued a letter propounding changes to Title IX regulations, um, the execution of these regulations, and Barrett paraphrases the letter's message as, a school's federal funding was at risk if it could not show that it was vigorously investigating and punishing sexual misconduct. And then she started citing instances cases where it was found that universities were cracking down on men more. So again, the magistrate judge was wrong. That's her ultimate conclusion. The magistrate judge was 
flat out wrong on Title IX and due process. And I'm gonna be honest, uh, this case reads as a men's rights case. It's a victory for those who chant, not all men. And there's one line from this case that I can't let go, which is, what John really seeks to do is champion the rights of other men at Purdue who might be investigated for sexual misconduct using the flawed procedures that he describes in his complaint. Barrett wrote this line, but she shuts the idea down in the next sentence, so that's kind of good. But what I take away from this is that she is changing how the law for the Seventh Circuit contemplates the phrase on the basis of sex, which is associated so closely to RBG, who litigated cases and quoted those words in pursuit of gender equality in the eyes of the law. So let's just take a look at this in the way Professor Kalina advised us to look at it in terms of power and in terms of gender and sex being spectrums. This this occupational liberty point that Amy Cooney Barrett affirmed, assume Jane Doe did tell the truth and John did molest her. Why are we protecting this right for him? It's it's akin to saying, oh, but person X is a prodigy and could have been something if they hadn't been punished for sexual assault. Like, how do we deal with that? Like, I'm genuinely curious about this because it reminds me of the ethical dilemma of, like, the ACLU having to defend free speech rights for the KKK. Why do we have to defend bad people. I'm kind of inching towards the answer that it's because our system is flawed. You know, there's there's a legal adage, is that how you say it? A legal adage that hard cases make bad case law. And this case proves that that's true. And it matters how someone in a judicial capacity tries to work with what they've got. I think that, I think that preface where Amy Coney Barrett notes that the facts are slanted and one-sided is her admitting that writing this opinion must have been hard for her as a woman and a judge because the facts suck. So from woman to woman, I will give her that. But the grander question is why she would elect to write this opinion and, you know, cite it as significant. I'm not particularly familiar with how opinion assignment works on the circuit court level, but like, how did she end up writing this assignment? And I think if I were her, I would have recused from this case or I would have thrown the case out if I could have, just disregarded it, because I wouldn't be able to write something like this opinion and sleep soundly at night. And I know I'm not being clear on why I don't like this opinion. I'm not I'm not giving like a concrete argument. So I'll just try to give it one last go because it's almost 12 a.m. here. If we did accept the facts about how unfair the investigation was as truth. If we took what John Doe said as truth, I definitely say that he should have won on procedural due process grounds. But I don't think that the measure of fairness should have been determined on the basis of sex. Like I can't I can't bring myself to agree with that. I see where she's coming from. I see where he's coming from, but I don't agree with it because you know on its face what the university officials did was wrong they didn't follow procedure but was taking into account jane doe's suicidal tendencies really necessary and yet yeah, that was disclosed was the establishment of occupational liberty or lack thereof in this particular context necessary 
was the legal gymnastics and inferences from the Department of Education's letter necessary? Because you know that this opinion is now law for the Seventh Circuit, right? So potentially a sexual assaulter could use the same arguments to get relief from punishment. And yeah, it's it's noble that she upholded the notion of a fair process, but I think this is just like spraying Febreze over a freaking land dump, okay? You can't beautify a terribly flawed thing. This we're talking about a system of justice that doesn't that isn't isn't focusing on restorative justice. It's a system that literally paid no attention to the victim and it's a system that stigmatized women's mental health. It's all of that for me. <laughs> so if I were her, I wouldn't have put this on my questionnaire as a significant opinion and yeah, that's because I'd be so embarrassed to <laughs> just be like I wrote this. Um, I wouldn't have signed off on it. But yeah, that was the second case. Friends, it's been such a long week and I'm recording this on Sunday night. It's three minutes till Monday morning and I, I've been reading these cases, these heavy cases all throughout the week while working a nine to five job with some overtime. So I'm exhausted, but I found joy in making this episode. Thank you to Gabrielle again, who called in. Thank you to Professor Colina, who took time out of her day to, you know, give me insight, give us insight. Definitely gonna read the book that you recommended. And thank you to all of you for listening. I hope you found this episode informative and I'll be going through Amy Coney Barrett's academic and legal writing in the next few episodes leading up to her hearings. So please look out for those. In the meantime, stay safe and wear a mask. Good night. Good morning. God save the United States and this honorable court.